my mom would open the stove and help heat the house. Now somebody who never grew up in that, and we knew as kids to stay away from that stove because that was our environment. Now people who didn't grow up in that environment will walk in and say, oh my God, that's so dangerous for kids. And, it, and I'm not saying it isn't, but they want to understand why the stove is open and the heat is on. Well, I understand why it is. I can walk into a house and be like, hey, you guys having a problem paying your heating bill? Maybe we can get you some assistance, you know? Whereas a person who never had to live that way would see that and wouldn't understand it. Welcome to Deviate with Rolf Potts, where I talk with experts, public figures, and interesting people about fascinating topics that meander off topic. Today's episode actually began many months ago with the realization of my own ignorance. It happened when a childhood friend of mine, a guy everyone always called Bear, posted on Facebook about policing, race, and media in America. Now, I've known Bear since he was 12 years old, and for as long as I've known him, he's always been the biggest guy in the room. He's also black, so when he posted that article, a part of me assumed it was about the dangers of racial profiling. That is, until I remembered that in the professional world, Bear isn't known as Bear. He's police detective Jerry Manuel. The article he posted wasn't about the simplistic stereotypes we attach to race in America, but the simplistic and often sensationalistic stereotypes we attach to police work in America. In reading the article, I realized that for all the conversations I've heard and had about policing in America, I know almost nothing about what it's like to be a cop at a quotidian, day-to-day -day level. I reckon most Americans share in this ignorance. Fortunately, one of the advantages of having your own podcast is that it gives you a pretext to interview whomever you want. I've talked with musicians, mountaineers, and filmmakers for this podcast. Why not interview a cop? So since I was back home in Kansas for the holidays last month, I sat down and talked with Bear. Now, the working title for this episode is What It's Like to Be a Black Police Officer in America, but I'll admit there's something kind of clickbaity about that, since it's silly to ask someone like Bear to speak on behalf of an entire race of people. I've known Bear for most of his life. He's always been a big-hearted people person in a way that's unique to himself, and that comes through in his work as a police officer. Now, in the interest of broadening perspectives on police work, this is actually a two-part episode. Part two is called What It's Like to Be a Latino Police Officer in America. Yes, another clickbait title. And that's a conversation with Lieutenant James Espinoza, another childhood friend of mine who went into police work. Now, the idea here isn't to take some kind of political stance on the issue of police work in America, but simply to get a window into what it's like to be a cop. And while Bear is black and James is Latino, I didn't select them on the basis of race. It just so happens that of the childhood friends of mine who went into police work, neither of them is white. I actually talk about the notion of diversity with both Bear and James since we attended a racially diverse high school back in the 1980s. And in pointing this out, both of them allude to a certain photo of our high school track team, which I posted in the show notes at rolfpotts.com deviate. Again, James Espinoza is a separate episode, and it's worth listening to both since James and Bear approached the police profession from different perspectives. James's duties, for example, which have included undercover work, have been more dangerous and conventionally action-packed in the pure narrative sense, whereas Bear, who was a Head Start teacher before he joined the force at age 33, has more to say about things like community policing, bias training, and other policy and procedure matters. I learned a ton from both of them, and seriously, when was the last time you sat down a cop and talked for an hour about what it is they do? This really is fascinating stuff. We'll start with Bear, interviewed in person over the holidays in Wichita City Hall. I mean, how long have you known? Obviously, it's about, I think, when you were a seventh grader and I was an eighth grader at Hadley, so that would have been mid-1980s. And uh, you've seen me interact with people. Sure. And how would you say I interact with people? Uh, well, I... 
I think your your nickname is Bear, but you're more of a teddy bear than a grizzly bear. You know, you're a you're a, a nice guy, an approachable guy. Now, with my size, size and stature, most people would say, "Yeah, I'm not going to approach that guy." But it's all about how you carry yourself. And uh, there's nobody in this world that's going to be perfect. There's you know, there's no perfect police. There, you know, there's no perfect store clerks. I mean, there's people that are very good at their job. But as far as being perfect 100% of the time, it's impossible. It's not going to happen. Um, I think people get confused because they expect us to be these superhuman beings. As police officers. Yeah, but yeah. we're human beings. Yeah. You know, um, I've made mistakes. People make mistakes. We're human. Mm -hmm. So what's going to happen. You know, you, you set us up for failure when you put us in a position where we have to be right 100% of the time. I hope to be right all the time, but it doesn't happen. Right. But as far as me being mistreated, I don't think I've ever been mistreated by police. Um, you grew up, what street did you grow up on? Well, I grew up on a lot of streets. Okay. Um, you know, of course, my mom My mom was a single mom of, five, of four. Well, I'm sorry, a single mom of five. Single mom of five. Yeah. Okay. And, and you, were you youngest, oldest? I was the second oldest. Okay. My sister was the oldest. I was the second oldest. My brother Alvin, and then there was Lavelle and Levance. Mm -hmm. And they all live here. Of course, my sister passed away when I was in college. Oh, okay. So. Um, but, you know, we, my mom had to play the role of mom and dad, which was good because my mom was a very loving woman. But at the same time, young boys need the discipline of a, of a, of a dad, and my mom had to play that role. Not making excuses for anything. You know, we had a great life. We didn't always have the, a lot of money. So family vacations didn't happen. My world was my neighborhood and Hadley Middle School. That mm -hmm. was it. That, that, if I swear if you would have walked past Hadley, you would have fell off the end of the earth because that's where the earth ended at. <laughs> and that's what I knew. And, you know, I, we didn't go anywhere else. We didn't go on vacations. We didn't have the money to do that kind of stuff. And that was fine because what I don't know won't hurt me. Again, like I said, you were always the biggest guy in the room. You played mm -hmm. football. and you, were, were you a thrower on the track team? I tried to throw shot put. I wasn't okay. very good. Because <laughs> okay. I have a picture of, uh, you know, I remember you from many yeah. environments, but I have a picture of you with this bicycle hat on, on, on our track team. And I'm on, we're both tall, so I was mm -hmm. on the back row on one side and you are on the, the back row. The one at North High. The one at North High. Yeah, yeah. that's still floating around Facebook pretty good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that has everybody, you know, there's like 50 of us in yeah, that picture. Yeah, a great so. group of people. I mean, we just, that group of people, we had so much fun together. So you went uh, to Butler, which is a commu community college in Kansas, yes. and then you played D1 football. I did. I played yep. two years at Butler. Uh -huh. and, uh, I was an all-conference player, and, and I made preseason honors my sophomore year, mm -hmm. preseason All-American honors. Mm -hmm. And after that, I went to play at Northern Illinois. I, I think I mentioned earlier my sister passed away. Okay, yeah. Okay, so that happened when I was at Northern. Okay. And then I think three months later, my mother, who was taking care of my grandmother, my grandmother passed away. Okay. And it really made you, it really gave me an eye opener to say, you know, what, I, I got to be near my family. And it was my goal when I went to college to go, go out and discover because my world ended at Hadley Middle School. Right. <laughs> and at, so, at Interstate 235, yeah. right? Uh, so it was my goal to get out and, and travel and see things and be in different places. And I did that and it was great. Um, but at the end of the day, when I had those losses in my family, it was really all about home. Uh, 
that point, I decided to come home for my Christmas break, and I um, talked to the coaches at Friends University. And I made them understand that I only had one year of eligibility left, and I would like to come home and play here. And so we were able to, I was able to do that because I could transfer from a Division One school to an NAIA school. About 1,200 no students or something? Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so I did that. And I finished up at Friends. Um, I met my wife. Um, very, very inspirational, very encouraging in my life. The, the half of the things that, that I've made possible in my life is a direct result of her. I mean, I, you know, you find the right woman and the sky's the limit. She, she gives me everything. She makes me believe in myself. She's such a good woman. And uh, I, I really, truly don't believe that I would be who I am today without having her in my life. Did you meet her right out of college or in college? I did not. I was working. I was a, a pre-K teacher at uh, Wichita Head Start. I remember I tell you I worked with children. Mm -hmm. um, I worked at St. Francis Child Care Center for 10 years. while I worked it when I was in, in the summers when I would come home for college break, from for summer break. And then when I finished my senior year at Friends, I went to work full time there, and I worked there until 2001, and then I went to be a teacher at Wichita Head Start. I wanted to work with lower privileged children. I mean, you know, I felt like that um, working at Head Start gave me opportunity to work with the type of children that I was when I grew up. Not a lot of money, you know, um, and it was great. We had a great time. But my wife was an education specialist there. And uh, so that's where I met her. And um, I guess to quote unquote, kind of say we were the taboo of the place because here I am a teacher and she's an education specialist and we, we started dating. And I, it was like God had set us up there because as soon as we found each other, she went to be a director for Rainbows United and I applied with the police department and we both got our dream jobs. And so what was the process of going from being a teacher uh, to being a police officer? Had you, had you, you said that you had always thought about being a police officer. Was it a, a point at which you thought your talents might be better served in police yeah. work? I was talking to my wife about it, and I was like, you know, this is something I've really always wanted to do. And um, she's the one that said, well, you know, you know, honey, you're not getting any younger, so if you're going to do it, do it. And that's a lot of pressure because I am totally throwing faith to the wind here. I'm going to quit my job that I've had forever and join the police academy at age 33 years old. And I got three kids, and we're planning on having a fourth. And so it was stressful for me because I'm, I've always had a job. And to throw caution to the wind like that, but I, with her encouragement, I never would have did it without her encouragement. And so me becoming a police officer basically was a decision that me and her came to together. So I applied for the police department, and there's a series of tests that you have to go through. And, of course, I got through all those. And um, in January of 2004, I joined the police academy. And so your desire to be a police officer, was it involved? Um, I'm just trying to think if you'd always been dreaming of it, was it because did it seem like an exciting job? Did it seem like a way to help people? Did it seem like something that would be able to do the best use of your skills? What specifically made you want to be a police officer? I don't know. I just wanted it. Okay. I, you know, I think it's easy to say that I'm, I've always been able just to talk to people. And what 
better way to meet people. Driving around in a police car. I remember those officers, and we thought it was so exciting to see those officers as a kid. And I'm like, man, that's awesome. I want to do that. And, of course, you know, um, we had James' dad, Big John. Uh-huh. And, uh, I, lo- I love John. He was great. He was, um, he was very matter-of-fact. Did you know him in, when you were a high school student? Oh, yeah. Okay. Oh, yeah. So this, again, for our listeners, this is our classmate, James Espinosa. Uh-huh. His father was a very distinguished police officer and very present very. at North High. Very booming. Yeah. When he spoke, you listened. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but with John was very good, very good dad to James and, and, and very good to me. He knew I didn't have a dad. And he didn't hesitate to treat me like his son, good or bad. He, he did it. And... Uh, I remember they oh, they welcomed me into his house, but I just always thought it was so cool that his dad was an officer. And, you know, being friends with James, uh, that was an encouragement, too. I was, when James became a police officer, I was I always looked up to him. Um, but remember I tell you earlier about home? It was very important that I do something that served my home. And I did it at Head Start, and I really peaked out there. There was nothing more I could do there. I was looking for a new challenge. And by home, do you mean Wichita or Northeast Wichita, the, the area you came up in? Wichita is my home. Okay. It does, and that's the thing people need to understand, is we have a lot of conflict in this world because we're too busy putting ourselves in groups, okay? I'm a Wichita. I'm an American. I'm very proud of this city, and I'm very proud of this country. Now, I'm a North High student. And I'm a, I'm a Northern Illinois student. And I'm a Fringe University student. I'm not a black man who goes to Fringe University. I'm a student that went to Fringe University. We're too busy putting ourselves in categories. You know, you are Ralph Potts, former North High student, and my friend. I am Jerry Manuel, a.k.a. Bear. I just happen to be black. So when I speak of home, I speak from the border of West Wichita, North, south, east, and west. I'm talking about the whole city, and that's home to me. And I want to get into all of these categories of your job, but I know that you just came back from, uh, I was a little bit late, but you were a little bit more late um, because you were in the hospital. Um, So what did you just, just to sort of contextualize what your day is like? Um, And not to go into too much detail because I can't. Okay. Um, I was assisting my partner on a shooting case we've been working. Uh, Of course, we were up interviewing one of our victims. Um, and that's the thing about this job as a detective. Um, you never know what's going to happen. You know, you come to work and you have this, 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 and I got to do today. And then all of a sudden a hot call comes out where we need all detectives on the scene. And your whole day is shot because that's the priority. I like that because you never know what you're getting. Uh, it's not always so fun, but it's necessary. Uh, I know that I, the last three Easter's. I have not been at home, <laughs> and I don't know how you get three consecutive Easter's in a row, but there's always been something on Easter that's pulled me away. This Thanksgiving, I got pulled away on a call, and it was gone all day. Um, that's where family, wives come, they're very important. You got really understanding wife. You know, she knows that that's just what it is. But she knows I love doing this. I see you're, you're wearing a necktie today, mm-hmm. so is it is it like in television where the, the patrol officers are the first to respond and mm-hmm. the detectives show up in their neckties later and, and try to yeah. figure out what happened? What we do is uh, we take the facts of the case and we put it together and, and we interview everybody needs to be interviewed. And we make sure the officers 
are the first responders. They're the most important part of a case because what they do can make or break a case. And so they gather all this information and they get it to us. And they collect the evidence, they get it to us. And, they, and then we take it all and we shuffle it all out and make sure it's all in order. Because what I have to do is I have to take the facts of this case to the district attorney. And then the, I give all the facts of the case to the district attorney and then the district attorney decides whether they charge it or not. So for example, today you're at the hospital just interviewing the victim mm -hmm. in an effort to help figure out who might have shot this person? Yes. Okay. And so um, with that, and, and, and I was just assisting on this case. This is actually my partner's case. I'm a gang detective, so I work gang cases. When you're, You are now? or you, I am now. Okay. Um, when you're a patrolman, not only do you work calls for gangs, but you work calls for homicides, you work calls for sexual assaults. I mean, patrolmen really are the, the jack of all trades because they have to be able to know how to work the, all these cases. Is that where everybody starts as a patrolman? Yes. Okay. Yes. Uh, everybody has to be a patrolman. You can't go from academy to, detect, to detective. You have, because how are you going to learn if you're not out there? I got to be honest with you, when you first get on patrol, you're like, oh my God, I don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> and you have to go out there and, and, and initiate contact with people. We're 911 answers. Okay. So we... Patrol. Yeah, patrol. Okay. We answer 911 calls, but not, you know, you got time in between where you enforce traffic enforcement. Okay. The best way to do self-initiated work is, in my opinion, through traffic. Until you start to learn things. You start to learn, you know, because I'm a new officer, so I don't know as much as Officer Smith because he's been on 10 years. He knows what he's looking for. I'm still trying to learn that, and through, I learned that through experience. So Officer Smith may set off a known drug complaint, and he knows the signs to look for to develop um, reasonable suspicion to conduct the stop. Whereas I'm new, and I'm, I'm learning that. So I know traffic when I'm, when I'm new. Now, as I've developed my skill set throughout the years, my bag of, of tools got bigger. And so I, I could contact people uh, based off of lawful stops and reasonable suspicion, and I could articulate in my reports why I did what I did. Okay, it's very important that you do that. Uh, so I think at first it is a traffic thing because that's the easiest way to have contact with people. Um, there's nothing wrong with, you know, I used to work part-time at Quick Trip as an officer. You see the officers hanging out at Quick Trip, and that's a part-time job. The store hires us to be there in the capacity as an officer. So it's off-duty? Mm-hmm. Okay. So there's a convenience store yep. security? Yep. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it wouldn't be nothing for me to see a group of kids come in, and they go to get their candy and stuff, and they come up to the counter, and I tell the clerk, yeah, I'm buying that for them. That's positive contact. I mean, you know, what's the $10? It ain't killing me. I knew when I was a kid at their age, $10 would have been a lot, you know? So, you know, three or four years down the road, I might be out working a homicide, and one of those kids might say, man, that's the dude that bought us candy. And I have a better chance of communicating with that kid based off of $10 I spent three years ago. $10 that I would have probably just did whatever with. $10 that my kids probably was just asked to go blow at the mall, you know? You know, I'll go into a house in Northeast Wichita because I grew up in that environment and I'll see things that I understand. Such I, as? I will, like when we were kids and 
we couldn't pay the heating bill, but we could pay the electric bill. We had an electric stove. My mom would open the stove and help heat the house. Now, somebody who never grew up in this, and we knew as kids to stay away from that stove because that was our environment. Now, people who didn't grow up in that environment will walk in and say, oh, my God, that's so dangerous for kids. And, it, and I'm not saying it isn't, but they want to understand why the stove is open and the heat is on. Well, I understand why it is. I can walk into a house and be like, hey, you guys have a problem paying your heating bill? Maybe we can get you some assistance, you know? Whereas a person who never had to live that way would see that and wouldn't understand it. Hmm. So that's where your diversity comes in important. And that's really important because when you're dealing with a community our size, it's very important to have a police department that reflects the community that you serve. Okay. Okay. Because when we walk into those situations where officer may not understand what's happening, but another officer who grew up in that situation, hey, kind of understand this, you know, and I can explain that. That's accepting diversity. And so we accept diversity among our ranks and we accept diversity amongst our citizens, mm -hmm. okay? Because when you can accept diversity, then it's easier to protect the community and it's easier to have ethical behavior and it's easier to problem solve. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? So um, diversity is a big part of it. It's a melting pot. It's no, no different than North Hive. Back when we, when you said we'd see Asian, Cambodian, Hispanic, mm -hmm. African-American. Were you able to accept people's differences? Mm -hmm. Yes. Why? Because you were, you were thrust in that environment. And having a frame of reference, too, you know, mm -hmm. that, that I think sometimes, and actually you might have an interesting um, perspective on this. One, one advantage we had growing up at North is that we're comfortable around all those races. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I guess maybe we didn't have many South Asian people and we didn't have many East mm -hmm. Asian people. We had Southeast Asian people. We had African American people. We had Hispanic people. But I think sometimes um, fear comes out of situations where you're, you're not experienced enough mm -hmm. in situations that you project mm -hmm. um, things that may not be there on people who aren't like yourselves, mm -hmm. and so. Well, one thing, I, another thing I do on this department, uh, I teach our rookies in the academy uh, bias-based, fair and partial police training, bias-based police training. Okay. I'm an instructor. Mm -hmm. And, and once, what does that look like? Basically, fair and impartial policing training is this. You can't let your biases or your stereotypes affect your job, okay? You can't let those affect police decisions. Okay, you can believe, you can truly believe something, but the day you take a police action because of the color of somebody's skin or their religious belief or anything, you're wrong and you will be punished. And so you have to override those. I'm not gonna tell you how to think or how to believe, that's your business. Just don't let it affect my police work. I don't know if you know this, but do you know that in a stressful situation, the higher stress level, you know, the higher level your stress gets, the the less you can use your fine motor skills. Uh, I didn't know that. Yes. Hmm. Run three miles and then try to sign your name and see how difficult it is. Hmm. So as your, your stress rises, you lose your fine motor skills. And why is that? Well, the way it's been explained to me is because your heart starts pumping and it's just like if something happens, the body is sending less blood to those areas because it's keeping your core hmm. for the stress.
Hmm. Well, you lose that fine motor skill. Not all the way, but it, you can definitely tell that your fine motor skills are. And you get tunnel vision. You know, Well, we have to combat that. We have to try to keep ourselves as calm as we can because we're no good stressed out. And we have to be able to see everything. Now imagine that you're in a gunfight and you're stressed. And if you're not stressed in a gunfight, I want to know what kind of coffee you're drinking. <laughs> and we're supposed to make, we're, and, and we have to make sound decisions in a matter of seconds. That's, that's easier said than done. Let me explain to you. If I pull my, my sidearm out, it is a deadly force situation. Okay. And does this happen very often? What do you mean? Uh, pulling your sidearm out. Well, when I was on patrol, I'd have to take it out. I never shot it in, in, in the line of duty. I've shot it at the range. Mm -hmm. But every time I pulled it out, it was, it was going to be a situation to where I was going into an unknown. Or it was a situation to where there's a threat and I might have to deal with that threat. Okay. Um, if it's not a deadly force situation, then I should never be out. Make sense? Yeah. So if I go into a situation and I don't deem that it's a deadly force situation, that gun should never be out. If I take it out because I can articulate that, hey, there was a danger here that might put my life or somebody else's life in jeopardy. Okay. And so that's a deadly force situation. Now think about that word deadly force. If I shoot at a gun out of your hand, is am I trying to stop that threat? Because it's a deadly force situation. That's the only time I'm allowed to use it. Does that make sense? Yeah. I mean, is there a hypothetical? Are you seeing people on Facebook saying that police officers should shoot guns out of hand? Well, yeah, you see it all the time. Okay. And that's just not if, it's not, if I don't feel like my life is in danger, it should never be out. Okay. If I don't feel like somebody else's life or my life is in danger, mm -hmm. it shouldn't be out. So if, if I pull out my, my firearm, it's a deadly force situation. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. yeah. I'm not trying to be insensitive here. Lives matter. People, everybody's life matter. Mm -hmm. You know, but there's, there, I'm deemed with the responsibility of protecting not only myself, but the general public. And I'm not going to pull out something at a level of force if I don't think that level of force is necessary. So it's unrealistic for me to shoot somebody in the leg. That's not, that's not going to stop the threat. If I shoot you in the leg and you got a gun on me, you're going to continue to shoot at me. Mm -hmm. If I think I can stop the threat with non-lethal weapons, that's what I'm going to have out. If I pull my gun out, because it's a lethal situation. And people need to understand that. This is not the Wild West. This is not John Wayne shooting guns out of people's hands. It, that's, not, that's unrealistic. That's, that's, and it's not their fault. That's what they've seen on TV. And it's unrealistic. And is there, there, there must be training to determine the, the um, yes. like what constitutes yes. Yes. the pulling your gun out situation. Yes. And we are trained on it, and we are versed on it, and it's, it's never a fun thing when that type of thing happens. It's not fun for the officer. It's not fun for anybody. Uh, it's, it's the last thing we want to do. And I can truly, honestly say that's the last thing I want to do. If I don't ever use this gun in a deadly force situation, that is the perfect career. I don't want it. I don't want to do it. But that's not my choice. 
once the gun is out, what dictates whether or not it's it's fired? Is it just like once the gun is out, that, that's a deterrent to the to person? have a deadly to have a, a, a force situation? Mm-hmm. There are th- three things that has to be present: jeopardy, ability, and opportunity. Okay, if a guy's got a hammer in his hand and he hit me in the head with a hammer, he could kill me. That's a deadly force situation. But if a guy has a hammer in his head and he's got, we got a car between us, there's no ability. That's not a deadly force situation. I'm still going to have it out because if he runs around the car at me, I have to be prepared to deal with that. But I'm not going to shoot him from across the car because there's no ability there. Okay? There has to be a jeopardy there. The hammer in the hand, that's the jeopardy. The ability, he's within close proximity he can kill me. And the ability, he can get to me. And the opportunity, I mean, I'm, I'm sorry, the opportunity, he can get to me. There's nothing there keeping him from me. Mm-hmm. So all three of those, those things have to be there. Now, that could be there, and I could have my sidearm out, but one of them go away. That's not a daily force situation anymore. You know? He has a hammer out. He's in close proximity with me. He can hit me. He puts the hammer down. Okay, the jeopardy is gone. So it's not a daily force situation. I'm still keep it out in case it changes. But I'm not going to fire that gun in that situation. Okay, so I mean, just because it's it it, it starts as a deadly force situation doesn't mean it ends that way. Just because it starts as a non-deadly force situation doesn't mean it's not going to turn into a deadly force situation. And every situation, there's another thing I want people to understand: every situation is different. What happened on this side of town, or what happened at this scene? doesn't necessarily mean it happens here in this situation. Things can change. You know, guy had a gun out, threatening officers. Officers had their guns out. He threw his gun down, surrendered. He didn't get shot. Same guy over here has a gun out. He's waving it around. He never puts it down. He points it toward the officer. He gets shot. That's a totally different situation. It's the same setup, but there's total different circumstances that dictates what the officer did. What about these gray areas? Like, um, actually, the the headlines are made. It's the the unarmed uh, suspect. You know, um, how does that gray area play out? Well, for police officers, you know, on those situations, I don't really speak because if I'm not involved in that, I don't know. But I do know this: that sometimes we're in situations where I don't know what a person has. I walk up to you, and I got my hand in my jacket. I don't know what you got in there. And all of a sudden, I make a quick movement, and it's, it turns out to be a hairdryer. I mean, you got a matter of seconds before you can make a decision. How do you, how do you, what do you do? What would you do? Well, I think, yeah, that's. Um... But those situations are different, and everything can be different. So, unless it's an actual situation that I know, have knowledge of, and I see how it played out and I have a fair judgment of the timing and the situation, you know, I don't really speak on those because I think it would be unfair. And uh, there are situations where that happens and people are unarmed and the officer is justified because of the way things were articulated and what the officer seeing. Because it's not just the situation, it's what would a reasonable officer do in that situation? You know, what would a reasonable officer would a reasonable officer believe that that person was armed? You know, some situations you have where a guy's unarmed trying to take an officer's weapons. 
That's a deadly force situation, in my opinion. You're trying to get my What are you going to do with my gun when you get it? What are you going to do with my baton when you get it? You can beat me over the head with it and kill me. You know? So there's no two situations exactly alike. And, and until you hear the facts of what happened, you can't make a judgment. Well, Jerry Bear Manuel, uh, thanks for talking to us this hey, afternoon. Um, thank you for having me. I hope I didn't talk your ear off. This has been Deviate with Rolf Potts. More about everything that was just mentioned, including that old photo of the North High track team, can be found in the show notes at rolfpotts.com deviate. And as always, you can contact me with insights or questions at deviate at rolfpotts.com. This episode was produced by Justin Glow. Music is by Cedar Van Tassel. Jan Futterman helps me with the show notes. Thanks for listening, and I hope you tune in for future episodes of Deviate with Rolf Potts. Deviate with Rolf Potts.